Good morning, church. Great to see you all here this morning. I trust you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 24. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And without any further ado, let's pray and jump right in. Father, we just pause right now to thank you. To thank you for loving us in Jesus, not because we're lovely, but loving us until we are lovely. We thank you that in Jesus you love us as we are, but love us too much to leave us where we are. That you shape and conform us into the image of your Son. Thank you for gathering us here together this morning that we might worship you and have our hearts recalibrated around the truth of the gospel. That we would hear from your word and gather around your table and come to know afresh the risen Christ. We commit this time to you now in his name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Um, Friends, I was thinking about the sermon for this morning, and one thing that I wanted to tell you, one thing that we could not get through this entire service without affirming yet again is this. Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is risen. Death could not hold him. The very worst that capital punishment could do, the very worst that all of the accumulation of all of human hatred and injustice could muster, was to hold him in a grave for three days at his own will. Death is defeated. Because Jesus is alive and has conquered death, That means for you, Christian man or woman, your death is not something that lies in front of you some years, decades ahead, something to be dreaded and feared. Your death is with Christ 2,000 years ago, and all that lies ahead of you is life eternal. Jesus is alive. The weight and the guilt and the shame for all of the sin, for all of the people whom the Father has given to Jesus has been paid in full. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. The Father has vindicated the offering of the Son and said that was good by raising him to new life. That means that you and I can stand here today with our sins forgiven, bearing our sin no longer. The grave is empty. Jesus is alive. This is the picture of baptism that you and I, for for a Christian man or woman, the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead is not merely a fact from history, although it's never less than that. It's actually something that we are mystically united to Christ in. Paul talks about this in Romans, how in our baptism, when we are initiated into the Christian life, we are buried with Christ, our old self dies, our sinful self dies, and we are raised to new life in Christ. Jesus is alive, and you're alive with him. Listen, everywhere you look, you will see evidences of the fact that Jesus Christ is no longer dead, he is risen, he is alive. It's evidenced by the fact that people are still being born again to this day. You know that's a work of the risen Christ by his spirit? If you think for one second that you could convince anyone 
Number one, that they're a sinner. And number two, that because a Jewish carpenter died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, they now have a right standing before God. If you think that you could do that, apart from the fact that Jesus is alive, the Spirit is at work, well, you're delusional. So every time you see a person who's born again, you're reminded that Jesus is alive. This is precisely what Luke set out to record nearly 2,000 years ago. Luke, we are told in Luke chapter 1, you can turn there just very quickly, actually, a couple pages to the left. Luke chapter 1. We're told that Luke set out to put together an orderly account, that he interviewed eyewitnesses to these things. Luke was an educated man. He was a physician. And in Luke's gospel, he compiles some of the events that happened throughout Jesus' life. In particular, the ones we're looking at over these weeks are some of the events that happened during the 50 days between Jesus being raised to new life and him ascending into heaven. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Here's what Luke says. He says, Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, here's what Luke does, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke is writing his gospel to a man named Theophilus, or more generally to everyone who is a lover of God. That's what Theophilus means. And he writes with a purpose in mind. Look at verse 4. Do you see the purpose? Luke sets out to write this orderly account to Theophilus and to all God lovers so that there would be great ambiguity around Jesus Christ. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? So that you would have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And just that very word, certainty, echoes in the chamber of my heart these days. I'm drawn to that word like a moth to a flame. It's because certainty is so hard to come by these days, isn't it? If you're like me, you find yourself inundated with information to the point where I have to admit that I've become suspicious of everything that I hear, read, or see in media. This is reinforced by the fact that I've watched as statements that you would have made on social media merely six months ago that would have had you banned from their platforms have since been proven to be true, right? And so these things undermine my confidence and my certainty. I found that certainty is hard to come by these days because I'm cautious with all media that I consume. I've become skeptical of narratives. I've started to wonder what's going on behind the story. But then it goes even deeper, right? Because if you're self-reflective at all, you find yourself not only skeptical of media, but then you ought to find yourself skeptical of your skepticism. Because if you're not careful, what you'll find is this lack of certainty and this inundation of information, um, it makes you skeptical, but then it can cause a knee-jerk reaction where you will then 
reject everything that you hear out of hand and latch on to every theory that comes along no matter how insane. And so you're not only uncertain because you're skeptical, you're now uncertain because you're skeptical of your skepticism. You don't want to jump on board with everything that's opposite to the media because that's a problem too. And you're left with this question, how can a Christian man or woman have certainty in this age of relativism? How can you have certainty in anything? Well, I've come to conclude a couple of things. The first one is, I have certainty because I've been on the planet for 48 years, and over those 48 years, I've kind of figured out how things work, right? So my lived experience can help me navigate life. I kind of know how things work. That's one. That's not entirely trustworthy, but it's pretty good. The second way that we can have certainty as Christian men and women is to look not to outside news sources, no matter how good we think they are, but to look to God's word. It is truth. In God's word, we find timeless truth, and we need to keep coming back to it. In an age where everything feels like it's in flux, it is God's word that provides the bedrock, the foundation, the anchor point for everything in our lives. Everything else is just a bunch of noise. And see, that's what Luke wanted to drive home. Luke wanted to leave no ambiguity, no wiggle room. The claims of his gospel are fact. He did the eyewitness account interviews. He compiled them under the direction of the Holy Spirit so that you and I could have certainty. And friends, certainty about the most important facts in history. And one in particular that I want to look at today. One fact that changed everything. Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. And then he appeared to disciples. Jesus is risen and he's with you. Luke 24 Verses 13 to 35, we have an account called the Emmaus Road. In the New Testament, there are 11 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and some of those tell the same story, but from a different angle. Actually, Luke's gospel is the only place where you're going to find this account of the road to Emmaus. And Luke wants you to know this this morning. You can have certainty that Jesus Christ is risen and alive. He will come to you, we're going to see in our passage, in fellowship. He will come to you in the word. And he'll come to you in the breaking of bread. With that in mind, let's jump in. The first. The risen Jesus is known in fellowship. Look at verses 13, 14, and 15. That very day, so this is Easter Sunday, 
the day of the resurrection. Two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Emmaus, we believe, is probably slightly northwest of Jerusalem, and they were walking. You know, these days we walk for exercise and because we like it. Back then they walked because they didn't have cars. They were walking on this road to Emmaus, we're told, in verse 13. In verse 14, they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. This is maybe an obvious point, but it hit me so hard this week. It hit me afresh. Here we see an encouragement for Christian believers to speak with one another about Jesus. Don't miss that. The one disciple named Cleopas and the other unnamed disciple, they're walking along the road, and as they're walking along the road, they are not debriefing last night's Toronto Maple Leafs game. They're talking about all the things that had happened over the last couple of days in Jerusalem. What are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. They're walking and they're chatting about their Lord. Now look, we often think about talking about Jesus to unbelievers, and that's good. Last week, we looked at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and we we're reminded of the importance of going and, and, and making disciples and baptizing and teaching. That's to non-believers. But here we see the importance of speaking to one another about Jesus. Look, when Jesus has truly, radically changed your life, it's all you're going to want to talk about. If you don't believe me, just find yourself in a social setting where someone has recently started CrossFit or become vegan or keto. Right? It's, it's, it's downright annoying because it's all they talk about. And I know I'm guilty as charged. I'm sorry for you guys that I've you know, talked to about everything. But when Jesus Christ has completely changed your life, it just wells out of you all the time. That's all you want to talk about. When Jesus is your greatest treasure, when you've truly found him, now actually more specifically, when he truly finds you, you're going to talk to one another about him. And this is what the New Testament calls iron sharpening iron. This is how Christian men and women spur one another on to love and good deeds, to use another phrase from the New Testament. This is how we encourage one another in godliness, by real deep fellowship in Christ. When we get together, pushing past the weather and the Blue Jays and all those superficial things that we talk about, what a great privilege it is to have brothers and sisters with whom we can talk about our Lord. Hey, what's Jesus doing in your life these days? Here's what Christ is doing in me. What a great privilege we often forfeit when we fail to do so. 
Listen, I would, I would love, love to walk out in the fellowship hall on a Sunday afternoon during coffee time and overhear you all talking about Jesus to one another. That's what they were doing on the road. And look what happens in verse 15. They're walking along the road, they're talking about Jesus, and while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Look, don't be surprised if when you're talking about Jesus with one another, Jesus will himself draw up near alongside of you and walk along with you in your conversation. You'll have a sense that the risen Christ is right there alongside you. Before we move on to our second point, would you do that with me right now? Would you commit to looking for ways to steer conversations to Jesus, not only with your unbelieving friends and family members, but with other Christians? Don't be surprised if when you do, you will find certainty in the risen Christ. It's in moments like that, if you're saying, I'm just, I'm struggling with my certainty, I have a lot of questions around Jesus, start talking to other believers about Jesus, and you're going to find him saddled right up alongside you. It'll bring certainty and confidence. Look at verses 16 to 27. Here we see that the risen Christ is certainly known not only through fellowship, but he's known in the word. You read passages like this, and it's, on the one hand, surprising, right? You think, how can these men get it wrong all the time? Well, hands up if you're thankful that the disciples got it wrong, because you get it wrong too. Amen? Man, when I read the Gospels, if the disciples got it right all the time, I don't know what I'd do. In verses 17 to 24, this part of the account is just laden with irony. Do you feel it? In verse 17, we're told that these two guys have been walking along the road and they've been talking about Jesus. They're like, man, you won't believe what happened over the last couple of days. And Cleopas says to the other guy, he's like, yeah, it's incredible, right? And they're talking about Jesus. And then Jesus comes up alongside them. And he says, hey, guys. What are you talking about? And they look at him and they stand there sad. That's what we're told in verse 17. Verses 18 to 20. How could these guys not recognize Jesus? Well, they knew a lot about him, didn't they? They had been talking about him. They knew, verse 18, that he was a prophet, that he was mighty in word and deed before God and the people. If you read on, you see that they even understood details of his death and crucifixion. They know that he was delivered up by the chief priests and the rulers, that he was condemned to death and crucified. Verses 22 to 24, they even knew about his resurrection. They knew a lot of facts about Jesus. 
but they didn't know him. He was standing right beside them and they didn't recognize him. Why? Verse 21. Listen to what they said. This is how they missed him. They said, but we had hoped that things would work out a little differently. Right? That's what's implied. Verse 21. We had hoped that he, Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Notice that these guys had preconceived notions about who Jesus was. What he was supposed to do. We're also told in verse 16 that their eyes had been kept from recognizing him. We're going to pick that up in a moment. But I want to focus in on verse 21. They missed Jesus because they were clinging to their preconceived cultural ideas. They were standing right in front of the risen Christ and they didn't recognize him for who he was because they had this social construct and this cultural understanding that when the Christ came, he would actually physically overthrow the political oppressors, the Romans. That's what they believed would happen. And it didn't happen. So they missed Christ. Well, listen, before we get to up on our high horse and judge these guys, I want us to pause for a moment and think about what are some of the cultural ways of thinking about Jesus that get in our way? What are some of the things that we get hung up on about what we think? What we think Jesus should be. What we think Jesus should do. Look, many people these days profess faith in Jesus, but when you drill into it, when you scratch a little bit beneath the surface, it's not the Jesus of the Bible that they're believing in. It's a Jesus of their own creation. This is a problem that tripped up not only Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus, it's a problem that trips up many would-be believers even today. It goes something like this. I believe in Jesus, but I cannot conceive of or accept a Jesus that would fill in the blank. You ever heard that? Or, or how about this one? People say, the Jesus that I know would or wouldn't fill in the blank. Or another way that we get hung up in these same sort of cultural um, presuppositions that prevent us from seeing the risen Christ and rob us of our certainty. We say things that not only directly contravene Jesus, you know, who he is and what he does, we go after his lordship. With our own cultural expectations, we say things like, well, there's no way that that could be sin, even though the Lord Jesus Christ says that it's so. All of these are, in fact, products of us believing in a God and in a Jesus of our own design. 
holding on to our cultural expectations, our preconceived notions about what Jesus should be like, rather than Jesus who comes to us revealed in God's word. I can't put too fine a point on this this morning. If your faith and trust is in Jesus who is not the Jesus of Scripture, then you're just like Cleopas and the other disciple. You're clinging to cultural norms and creating a Lord and Savior in your own image instead of worshiping the risen Christ. And friends, there is no risen Christ to be found in cultural norms. There is no certainty to be found. We all have preferences and cultural bents. When we come to Jesus revealed to us in Scripture, there are things that we wish were not so. But we're not free to twist and warp and shape Jesus into our liking by our cultural expectations and preferences. Or we'll miss him altogether. Instead, we need to have our minds renewed. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He tells us as Christians that we are all engaged in this ongoing process of refusing to allow our thoughts to be conformed to the world, but instead having our minds transformed so that we might test and discern what is the will of God and what is good, acceptable, and perfect. It's the process for every disciple of Jesus. To constantly be thinking and wondering and praying and asking the Holy Spirit, convict me of those areas where I, like Cleopas and the other disciple, am missing the risen Christ because of my cultural expectations that I've foisted on Jesus. Well, here we see a pattern set out in this account. If you would say, man, that's convicting me, I know that I do that sometimes. You can come to know certainty in the risen Christ by having your mind transformed. First, as we said, through Christian fellowship. That's one place where you see the risen Christ and you're granted certainty. But the second one is right here in these verses. Look at verse 25. Look at Jesus' rebuke and then his remedy. So remember, Cleopas and the other disciple, they're standing right in front of the risen Christ. They've missed him altogether because of their cultural presuppositions and what they believe Jesus should have been or done. They've missed him. Jesus rebuked, verse 25, he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He says, you're slow of heart to believe. That's why you've missed me. To believe what? He says, all that the prophets have spoken. You see, the remedy, the thing that rescues us from 
clinging to our cultural expectations of Jesus and missing the risen Christ is the word of God. It's the Bible. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, well, if that's the rebuke, then here's the remedy. And so he sits these two guys down on the side of the road. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? And he holds the greatest Bible study of all time. The Lord Jesus Christ opens the scriptures, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, Jesus, through the word of God, is revealing himself as the risen Christ by identifying and displacing all these cultural expectations that these men had brought with the word of God. That's how the risen Christ comes to them, in fellowship and in the word. Jesus opens the Old Testament, because that's what they had at the time, and he goes page by page through it with these two guys, and he says, hey guys, me, it's all about me, page one to page end, all about Jesus. I imagine it would have sounded something like this. In Genesis chapter 1, Jesus Christ pre-exists all of creation. He is the very logos, the word by which everything is created and the cosmos are framed. Jesus in creation. Jesus is the greater Adam. By one man entered sin and death, and so by one man also comes the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Adam failed the faithfulness test. Jesus passed it. Jesus is the better Abraham, by whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. Jesus is the better Joseph. This Joseph who was handed over by his brothers, but by his faithfulness was set apart for the saving of many souls. Jesus is the greater Moses, who doesn't receive ten commandments on Mount Sinai, but instead stands on the Mount of Beatitudes and gives the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the rock of ages, cleft where Moses was hidden from the very presence and the wrath of God. Jesus is David's greater son. David slayed Goliath. Jesus has destroyed the greater Goliath. Sin, hell, death, and the devil. Man, we could go on. But see, it's that kind of reading of Scripture that displaces all of those cultural expectations and reveals to you the risen Christ in Scripture. If you're struggling to see the risen Christ, have Christian fellowship. Dive into the Word of God and go on a hunt for Jesus. The risen Christ will come to you. It's a great concern and a burden that I feel that there are so many Christians who have a Christless faith. 
So many Christians that read the Old Testament in particular, and they know all the Sunday school stories, but they don't see Jesus in them. Good-hearted, kind people, but they've never met Jesus in the Scriptures. Well, friend, if that's you this morning, then the risen Christ comes to you in this passage with a loving rebuke. He says, you have a false sense of hope. You've placed your hope in a Christ of your own making. Jesus invites you along with Cleopas and this other guy to study the word. To meet him maybe for the first time in the scriptures. To bow your knee to him and adore him as the risen Christ made known to you in the scriptures. You and I can so far see that we have certainty in the risen Christ revealed to us in fellowship and in the risen Christ revealed to us in the word of God. Third and final one, verses 28 to 35. Jesus reveals himself not only in fellowship and in the word, but in the breaking of bread. Before we get to that, look at verses 28 and 29. So they get up from their Bible study. They then begin to make their way. They're walking along. They're nearing a village to which they were going. We're told he, Jesus, acted as if he was going further. Verse 29. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. But before we get to this third point of Jesus revealing himself to them in the breaking of bread, I want you to notice the role of boldness in petitioning the Lord. You know, far too often we in our prayers come to the Lord God as though we are groveling and begging. You know, we come to God with prayers like, you know, God, um, if you have time and kind of if you wouldn't mind, would you please give me a passing thought? But that's not the picture of what we see in Scripture. Here, Cleopas and the other disciple place a holy constraint upon Christ. We're told in verse 29 that they urged him strongly. This is the same sort of language that we see in the Old Testament account of Jacob. When Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And Jacob refuses to let go of the angel of the Lord. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Oh, Christian man or woman, for more of that in our lives. In prayer, lay hold of God and the promises that are yours in Christ. And urge Put a holy constraint upon God in your prayers. Jesus did not rebuke them for it. He didn't say, who are you guys to tell me what I'm supposed to do? He stayed with them. And that brings us to the final way that you can know the risen Christ. In verses 30 to 31, we see that 
These disciples are no longer given eyes that are kept from seeing, as we saw in verse 16. Jesus reveals himself to them. The first thing that I want you to see is this. Look at verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Verse 31. Their eyes are no longer shut. Their eyes are opened. They recognize him and he vanished from their sight. This only puts a finer point on our first point. The risen Christ has chosen to reveal himself in fellowship. And in particular, over a meal. If you're a Christian man or woman today, and you are awash in uncertainty, and you want to find this bedrock of certainty that Jesus Christ has risen, there are a few better ways to do it than to go to one another's homes, fellowship, share in a meal. Come to church, fellowship with one another. Stick around afterwards for a coffee and a cookie. Eat a meal together. Come once a month to potluck. And as you do, you will talk with one another about Jesus over a meal. You'll talk about what he's showing you in the scriptures. You'll see him. You'll know him. How many people have come to faith in Christ, not because of the eloquence of a preacher, but because of the warm fellowship of a church? Many. The second thing we see in these verses is that it is Christ who reveals himself to these disciples. It isn't that the disciples cleverly figured it out. All of their cleverness actually led them to the wrong conclusion, didn't it? This is the way it's always worked. These are the decrees of God. You cannot make yourself less foolish and less slow of heart to believe. Verse 25. You cannot grant to yourself eyes to see and recognize Jesus. Verse 16. Instead, Christ comes to you. He reveals himself to you. And perhaps he's doing that even now. Listen. This is good news for the Christian man or woman. That any faith that you have is not because of you. It's a gift of God and it's a miracle. It's God's work. Causing you to be born again and to believe in the Son. That's what's happening here with these two guys in Jesus. And the third thing that we can draw from these two verses is this. The risen Christ reveals himself with certainty to these two guys around table fellowship. Look, in a couple of moments, we're going to gather around the table. And we're going to remember another time, just a couple of days before this moment, that Jesus gathered disciples together. And what did he do? He did exactly what we hear in verse 
30. He took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. If you are here this morning and you are searching for meaning in a world in flux, come to Jesus. Even more specifically, Jesus comes to you right here, right now, through these means of grace. Here you are sitting in church and it's no accident. You're surrounded by Christian brothers and sisters who are eager to encourage you and talk with you about Christ. You have seen Jesus in the word. And now we are about to break bread together at the table. Behold him, the risen Christ. Verse 32. And so they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Saving faith is not exclusively a cerebral exercise. When the risen Christ reveals himself to you in fellowship, in the word, and in the breaking of bread, it's going to go from your head to your heart. It will cause you to be born again. And you will say with the disciples, did not our hearts burn within us? That's why Christian men and women love to read the word of God. Because when you do, you'll feel your heart burning within you in the presence of the risen Christ. That's why you can't keep Christian men and women away from gathering on Sundays because as you come forward to receive and as you fellowship, your heart will be burning within you because of the risen Christ. So come to him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that in today's world there are so many different narratives competing for our attention. So many things that could lead us astray and cause us to feel uncertain and wonder. Thank you that in your word we are instructed to find certainty in the risen Christ in fellowship in the word and in the breaking of bread. God, I pray especially this morning for anyone here who would say, I know Jesus, I know about him, but what they really know are just their own sort of cultural expectations, what they wish he was like. Lord, that each of us would meet you afresh this morning as we come together around your table. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.